Well, just before the service began, uh, you should have received an acorn, and so I'm going to invite you to go ahead and pull out your acorn. If you got an acorn, um, many years ago when I got into youth ministry, we learned a few uh, tricks of the trade, and one of the tricks of the trade is to keep uh, people's hands busy. Uh, Busy hands means less busy mouths, and so uh, it works about 50% of the time, and so Claire, when I was passing out that Play-Doh during confirmation, uh, that was purpose and meaning, so we all, you know, we just, they thought we were just playing with Play-Doh. Oh no, there was a reason behind that. And, uh, and it works most of the time. And it's just fun. Uh, but I want to encourage you, uh, or invite you, I should say, uh, just during the message this morning, if you want to just hold that acorn in your hand. And if you've got your Bibles, uh, and I hope you do, acorn in one hand, Bible in the other, uh, we like to encourage folks to bring their Bibles each and every week. Uh, you can pull it up on uh, your tablet, you can pull it up on your cell phone. Um, I personally like to read scripture uh, from uh, a, a good old-fashioned Bible, however you want to do it, but please do bring your Bibles each and every week uh, as we're going through this sermon series, uh, Leaving a Legacy. We are in Second Timothy uh, 2, uh, beginning with verse 20. And we're just going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, throughout the book of Second Timothy. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and pull that up. Well, this past week, uh, I spent three and a half days in Columbus, Ohio, um, at uh, a Lutheran Congregation in Mission for Christ Leadership Conference, uh, also known as LCMC, and uh, maybe you've heard us talk about LCMC, and it stands for Lutheran Congregations in Mission for Christ. Uh, It is what we call a fellowship. It is not a denomination. Uh, We are about a thousand different Lutheran independent Lutheran congregations uh, that are in relationship with one another. Uh, We're in fellowship with one another. Uh, As part of this fellowship, uh, there are no bishops. uh, There is no hierarchy. uh, There are a few administrative folks who support the network, and we are one of about a dozen maybe 15 congregations in the state of Illinois, but uh, there are congregations uh, around the world, and and certainly, like I say, about a thousand across the United States. Now, many of you know that I am an introvert, which means being around people drains me. Uh, When I spend time with you, my energy level goes down. Uh, It's just how we introverts roll. Nothing personal. Uh, You introverts know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, But when I go to this LCMC conference, this leadership conference, my energy level actually goes up. Because it's my tribe, it's my people, it's the people that get me, it's the people that understand me. It's a group of leaders and pastors uh, that we have a high view of the, uh, of, the script, uh, of the authority of Scripture, and we just love to be in fellowship and relationship with one another. So if you've ever been to a church meeting before, uh, or a church conference before, this is completely different. This is more like a family reunion. Uh, we gather together and we spend time studying Scripture, we spend time worshiping, uh, we spend time uh, having meals, and we usually have between a five to seven minute long business meeting over the course of three and a half days. It really is like a family reunion. And it's one of the few places where I feel just completely comfortable talking to other people and other people coming up and we swap war stories together, we laugh together, we cry together, we pray together, and it's just a time of encouragement. Uh, And I just, I've already got on my calendar for next year. 
there in October. I can't wait to go back. I didn't actually want to leave this week, uh, but everybody else left the conference, and I figured I better come back, and I figured you were probably expecting a sermon uh, this Sunday morning. So I came back uh, uh, to, to be with you all, but it was just a wonderful week, a time to just uh, get my batteries recharged, and I know what you guys know. Uh, uh, you understand when I say that. It was just really, really good. And so over the course of these uh, three and a half days, uh, speaker after speaker uh, stood in front of the congregation, these 700 leaders uh, at a big church in Columbus, Ohio, and shared lots of stories and reflections about kind of what the challenges and dilemmas have been over the past 18 uh, months or so. And it was just really good uh, to hear stories. And uh, I was reminded again that the season that we've come through, and we're still in for sure, um, that uh, we just weren't trained for so much of this as pastors. They, there just were not courses on infectious disease control uh, when I went to seminary. There were not courses on racial tensions. Uh, there were not courses on uh, economic uh, catastrophes. There were not courses on forced homeschooling. Remember that, that we did this past year? Wasn't that awesome? I mean, our family chose to homeschool uh, once upon a time. You guys, uh, that was forced on you. And uh, um, yeah, I've heard lots of stories about that. And, and, and so we were expected to be uh, pastors also on um, one of the most extraordinary uh, elections our nation has ever seen. You know, how many times have we heard this word unprecedented over the past 18 months? There was no seminary course on that. Uh, no seminary course on critical theories. Um, I didn't know anything about, probably like you, that there were that many different options for pronouns in the world. And uh, funny, fun story, uh, we were driving back from Columbus, Ohio. This big uh, pickup truck drives by us. It's one of these lifted pickup trucks. It's diesel and, and all that good stuff. And in the window, it said, I identify as a Prius. I said, I like that. That's really good. So we, I guess we all just get to identify with whatever we want to identify. But there was no course on that in seminary. And people are asking me, hey, what about critical race theory? And what about these gender uh, uh, theories and, and all this? And I'm like, I, I don't know. But, but I'm supposed to be the expert on it, you know, as a pastor, as a leader in the church. There was no uh, course in seminary on social media and the ways in which it's poisoning our minds, especially the minds of young people, young women, and the rates of uh, anxiety and depression have just skyrocketed. I took a couple pastoral uh, care courses, but nothing like what our young people are dealing with today, the stress, the anxiety, the depression, and all that they are going through. And it's just like, oh yeah, uh, I kind of forgot about all that. It has been uh, quite a year. Uh, and we, of course, could go on and on. But I tell you what, overwhelming, uh, the mood, the theme, the tone of the conference is, yes, we've been through difficult times. Yes, congregations that were formerly worshiping five, six, seven hundred people are now worshiping 40, 50, 60 people. And people, pastors are wondering, are they coming back? Are people coming back? And the overwhelming prevailing thought is uh, many people say they are not coming back to church. They've left. They found something else to do. There's just been so much other stuff to do on Sunday mornings. And so uh, the leaders are just like, what in the world are we going to do? But there's this element of hope. Just over and over and over, this, this, this element, this tone, this tenor that God's in control. 
that God's got this. We've read the end of the book. We know how the story ends. Jesus wins. Amen? Amen. Yeah. And so it's just this, ah, it's hard. We're tired. We don't know where our people and our congregations are. But God is good. And we sang about that this morning. And as we sang, and I never know the songs or rarely know the songs Jeff is going to lead us in. And he just nails it every week. And I just think somehow, not somehow, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Just moves through Jeff and the text and just kind of bringing it all together. And we just sang about that this morning. God's love just comes after us and uh, uh, overwhelms us uh, no matter where we're at. And and he is good uh, in the midst of it all. And so we were asking, frankly, the same question at this uh, LCMC conference. What does it mean to live faithfully today? What does it mean to live faithfully today, even though we're tired, even though we're worn out, even though we don't know where our congregation is, so that seeds of faith are planted for tomorrow, that the church tomorrow cannot only survive, but the church tomorrow will thrive for generation after generation. So that's what we're talking about again this morning as we go through Second uh, Timothy. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads as we have a word of prayer. Uh, I think I gave you enough time to find Second Timothy. Let's go. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your word this morning. We thank you for renewal, for re- refreshment. We thank you, God, just that reminder that even though the world continues to be upside down, we're tired, we're worn out, we're weary. But yet, God, you are good, you are faithful, and you are in control. So, Lord, putting all the stuff that's been going on in our lives this week and maybe even this morning, just help us to focus on your word and what you would have to say to us. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning uh, by sharing a poem with you uh, by author Galen Anderson. Anderson writes these words. A man's life is either like a tumbleweed or an oak tree. Some people just grow like a weed. They're of no value in their youth. And as the years of life come, they break loose and become a blotch on society. They have no useful purpose in life, just grifters. Their loved ones will mourn their loss, but society will not miss them. Then there are those whose lives are like the oak. They have turned from the frivolity uh, uh, of this life and invested in things that have genuine worth. Their influence for good will live on in the lives of others after they are gone. Their death is noticed because their lives were spent bettering the nation the community, and I would say the world. And they will be missed. And so I want to ask you this morning, a little self-reflection. Is your life more like a tumbleweed? More like an oak? Here today, gone tomorrow, will your life continue to live on? your impact, your influence for generations long after you're gone. Now, I don't normally title my sermons, um, but I titled it this morning. I'm just calling it Living Today Matters. 
Living today matters, and you could even write that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 20. Living today matters even in the smallest of details. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes this to his young protege, Timothy. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is, hey, in the house, there are different kinds of things that are used, some for common purposes and some for holy purposes. And what's the distinction? Those who cleanse themselves. Those who cleanse themselves. Now, when we think about something that is very ordinary and turned into something that is made holy, I don't know about you, but for me, the image that often comes to mind is Holy Communion. Holy Communion, when we gathered this morning, uh, you probably picked up some elements, uh, a wafer, uh, some bread, uh, wine, grape juice, and those are just common everyday elements. There is absolutely nothing special about them. In fact, when I was growing up, uh, a good buddy of mine, uh, Dean, uh, we would go over to their, fam- their, over to their house. Uh, they, he grew up Catholic, and they knew the priest kind of well. And back in the day, uh, what the priest would do is they would get the punch out. I guess they punched out the wafers right there at the Catholic church. And uh, they would take these sheets of leftover bread. And my friend Dean, his mom, I guess, knew the priest. And so bring home just these batches and batches of, you know, leftover wafer cutouts, I guess, if you will. And we'd play video games. We'd watch TV. And we would just eat communion bread. It was just kind of like crackers and snacks and nothing special about it. In fact, if you were to eat it now, it's just bread, it's just a wafer, it's just wine, it's just grapefruit, nothing special about it. But in a little bit, we are going to pray, we are going to speak God's word over the bread and over the wine, over the wafer, over the grape juice. And as Christ followers, we believe something's going to happen. Something is going to change. That the bread, the wine, the wafer, the grape juice is no longer ordinary. It is now, the theological term is consecrated. It's made holy. It's made special. And we believe that the very presence of Jesus Christ is in the bread and in the wine. And I think this is what Paul is talking about. It's this idea of taking something ordinary, making it extraordinary, something common, and making it holy. And we read this theme over and over throughout Scripture, and of course, that's how Jesus spent the last uh, meal with his disciples, taking that and making it holy, and something where there's this mystery, the very presence of Jesus Christ in there. But the interesting thing about what Paul is teaching about here in uh, 2 Timothy, in his letter to, to, to young Timothy, it's not, he's not talking about communion. He's not talking about bread and wine and, and taking something so common and making them holy. He's talking about you. There it is. I call this cheesy Jesus. 
He's talking about you. He says, Timothy, I'm talking about you. Yes, you are ordinary. You are common. But when you are made clean, you will be an instrument for special purposes, holy, useful for the master, prepared for anything good. And you might be sitting here this morning. You might be tuning in online. He's not talking about me. There's no way. I am not holy. He talks about being useful to the master. And you might be thinking, I'm more like useless to the master. But Paul says, no. You're useful to the master when you are cleansed. And Jeff talked about this in his opening this morning from the book of Romans. That you have been cleansed. You've been washed clean. That you have been made new to something perfect and holy. God has done something in your life. In Christ, there is no condemnation. When you hear the word condemnation, it's actually a building term. And you've probably seen a condemned building. It means unfit for use. When you think about your life, maybe you're like, no, that's me. God doesn't have a special purpose for me, certainly not a holy purpose for me. But Paul tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does have a purpose for you. You. God has a purpose for you. Now, to be clear, you are messed up. You are broken. Nobody really believes your, all, your life is all that great on your Facebook page. Nobody's buying it. You are messed up. You are broken. But somehow, some way, Paul tells us, Jesus tells us, that when we are in Christ, you have been called for a special purpose and made holy. I love this quote by uh, Pastor Tim Keller, a pastor in uh, New York City, uh, who really kind of uh, describes uh, this juxtaposition. He says this, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. You're messed up, even worse than what you think. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hoped. I love that. We are messed up. We are completely broken. In and of ourselves, we are no good. But in Christ, we are more loved and accepted. We are made holy. One more cheesy Jesus image just to get that into your mind for the rest of the day and hopefully for the, second, uh, for the rest of the week. Verse 22, Paul writes, Flee the evil desires of youth. Now notice, Paul doesn't say, casually walk away. He doesn't say saunter. He doesn't say slowly leave your life of sin. He doesn't say just, you know, when you feel like it, meander away from all the sin, the brokenness, the evil in your life. He, there's this urgency to it, right? Run, run away. There is danger. There is a problem. I'm serious. Run away. 
flee, go, don't look back. Because there is danger and there is evil. He talks about the evil desires of youth. And some of you I know were just immediately offended. How Does Paul not like kids? What, what is he talking about? The evil desires of youth. My beautiful children? My beautiful, wonderful... You, did, did Paul just call my children evil? They're so sweet. That's not what Paul's talking about. He is describing what every child experiences in life. Evil desires. As children, this is who we are. This is who all children are. Children by nature are self-centered. That's who we are, right? Right there. You used to be like that. Your kids used to be like that. Some of your kids still are like that. And if you've got a baby, they're going to be like that. This is who children are. They're self-centered. They're self-absorbed. They are absolutely controlled by their emotions. They're controlled by their feelings. I mean, have you ever seen a parent trying to, like, reason with a child? I mean, it's completely a waste of time, right? Because they, they just got the emotions and the, and the feelings just right there. And they're just like, ah! And it's just, it, they're untamable. Because that's who children are. They live and view the world. Everything is about them, and everything is about their emotions driving them. And kids, until they figure it out, they're not really thinking about consequences either, right? They're not really thinking about discipline uh, that might be associated for them to get their emotions, their feelings under control. Some kids take longer than others. Some of you are in your 20s, maybe in your 30s, and you're still trying to figure out the whole consequences thing, right? 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, this whole idea, it's really not about children per se. What Paul is really describing is more about immaturity. Young people, when we are young, we we are overwhelmed and we are self-centered and we are absolutely focused on our emotions, our feelings, uh, and, and we just don't know how to control them. I remember when I was a kid, uh, and I've shared with you before that I've got an older brother, two and a half years older. Um, let's just say when I was a kid, I had some anger management issues. Anybody else have anger management issues when you were a kid? I mean, my brother and I, it was a fist fight uh, for most of our growing up years. He was two and a half years older than me. I never won. It was just, uh, I would get pummeled over and over and over. And uh, the image I think of growing up was my brother on top of me, uh, his knee on my shoulders, and he would uh, eat large amounts of peanut butter, and he would just kind of spit onto my face uh, peanut butter and just torture me. That was just my growing up years. I mean, it was just boys being boys. I always lost, and it was horrible. I never kind of figured it out, what it meant to control my mouth, control my anger with my brother. But one day, I found a steak knife. And I chased my brother all over the house. And I was yelling and screaming. And for the first time, I had a little bit of power. And I got to tell you, in that moment, I was not thinking about consequences. I wasn't thinking if I actually caught him. I was just on a mission to catch him. But my parents knew what uh, consequences were going to be all about. 
And as a child, my parents helped me with my uh, understand to grow up from immaturity to maturity. And I don't know how that worked for you growing up, but I spent a lot of time sitting in a chair, thinking about my actions, thinking about my words. Anybody with me on this? Sometimes I would sit in my room thinking about my actions, thinking about my words. Sometimes my dad would get out the belt thinking about my actions, thinking about my words. Some of you just kind of went, ooh, I remember that, right? Boom, think about it. That's what it means to be a child, out of control because our emotions are controlling us. And all of us, at some point in time, we need to learn how to get it under control. Our emotions, our feelings. And if we don't, there's something called the government that puts handcuffs on us and puts us in jail. And we sit there for a good number of months, years, and maybe for the rest of our lives. Because they are still children. They are still immature. They haven't gotten their behavior, their emotions under control. It never ends, right? And so what Paul is describing is just the whole idea that all of us know, all of us understand, is that we can either live as children, immature, allowing our emotions, our feelings uh, to kind of drive us through life, or we can start thinking about things, thinking about consequences, thinking about the things we we actually ought to do, uh, and allowing our minds to lead us and to guide us. We don't deny our emotions and we don't deny our feelings, but we are no longer driven by them, but Now we invite our minds to lead us and guide us through life. One is immature, the other is maturity. And this is what Paul is talking about. Paul doesn't hate children. He's using this as an illustration that people can understand. Mature people think. Mature people, when they feel that anger, those emotions, the whatever uh, rising up in them, they tap on the brakes and say, I'm going to just process this a little bit. I'm going to think a little bit about this. I'm going to think about the consequences of whatever it is I want to do. They are not controlled by their emotions. I want to give you a couple examples because it's not just about the kids. We've got more adults. I picked on the kids long enough this morning. Don't you think it's, Claire, don't you think it's time for us to pick on the adults? Yeah, I think so too. Because the thing is, uh, maturity is not, uh, it's not about uh, age uh, automatically. I mean, there are plenty of adults who continue to live and behave as children. And you know them. Don't point at them, right? If, they're, if you're sitting next to them this morning, don't look at them. But you know exactly who I'm talking about. I want to give you a couple examples this morning. First one is financially. Let's go ahead and put that one up there. In America, the average credit card debt, the average personal loans, the average auto loans, the average student loans, uh, these H-E-L-O-C, I guess is like a homeowner's uh, home loan, uh, and then we're going to throw out the mortgage because we all got to live somewhere, right? I'm going to give you a pass on that. This is according to Experian 2020 uh, Consumer Credit Review. And the simple example is this. Many people have trouble getting their finances under control. They're not bad people. They're not evil people. They're just immature people. They haven't grown up yet. They live their lives with their pocketbook saying, I want it. I want it now. I don't want to wait. That's how we get this much debt in our lives. A mature person says, I want it. 
I want it now, but I'm going to wait until my finances can cover my lifestyle. You see that? One is controlled by emotions. One is controlled by thinking. There's plenty of adults, probably adults here today, that their finances are driven by their emotions, their feelings. Good people. They just have not grown up yet. They have not matured into their finances. Okay, my goal is to offend everybody this morning. Uh, Next slide. It's Sunday afternoon. So after this afternoon, some of you are going to be sitting at home. You've been working all week. Um, you've been running kids around to soccer practice. You've been uh, going to grandkids uh, events. Um, you're tired. You're worn out. Uh, you, you, you went to church this morning, right? Check the box. You went to church this morning. You guys all get church points for that. Awesome. So you're going home. You're feeling pretty good about yourself, and you got a couple options. Oh, yeah, I didn't exercise that much this week. What are you going to do? What's your choice? What's your decision? What do you feel like doing? Or what do you know you need to do? Guilt. Shame. All right, if I haven't offended you yet, um, next one, relationships. This, I think, is one that gets us all in trouble, and I think we can all grow in. When we argue with others, when we have disagreements with others, what's our biggest enemy? We talked about it last week, our mouth. We argue with our emotions. We argue with our feelings like immature little children. We don't have it under control yet. A mature person thinks to themselves, now if I say that, what's going to happen? What are the consequences? I think we all know examples of relationships that have been ruined, broken, damaged for years. So Paul says, there's real life consequences here, folks. This is not hypothetical. This is not theoretical. You've got to run away. You need to flee. Because there are problems. If you just live the world focused all on yourself, your emotions, your feelings. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So Paul says, okay, don't just run away. But it's this conjunction, pursue right and pursue righteousness. Don't just run away, run toward what is good and righteous. Can we go back to the last one there? Running toward, do we have a run toward? There we go. Run toward these things. Pursue righteousness. Now, with the Bible, when the Bible talks about pursuing righteousness, the Bible clarifies very clearly pursuing righteousness does not mean right living. We say that again. Pursuing righteousness does not mean right living. What Paul is talking about here is a right standing before God. 
Now, we do right living for sure, and that's what Paul is talking a little bit about here. But when he talks about righteousness, pursue righteousness, what he is talking about is this biblical idea that when we are righteous, we don't do it on our own because we can't do it on our own. We know that, right? We're good Lutherans. We know that we cannot become righteous with Jesus, but we have right standing. So we can do all these good things, but in order to be in right standing with God, that is only done through the cross. That is only done through Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans 3, um, just to really kind of clarify this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we have become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given not earned, the righteousness is given freely through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. So when Paul talks about pursuing righteousness, what he's talking about is pursue Jesus. Because when you pursue Jesus, when you live and have that relationship with Jesus, that's what makes you in right standing with God. And so we saw the the tipping of the scales there. That's what makes things and puts us in right relationship with God. Martin Luther described this, the, the, the theologian, the, the guy from the Protestant Reformation, he kind of describes this whole idea of what it means to be righteous. Luther said this, this is the mystery by which, uh, which is uh, rich in divine grace to sinners. We're in a wonderful exchange. It's known as the great exchange. Our sins are no longer ours, but Christ's. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that it he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. So our sins, Jesus takes on himself on the cross. And Jesus, who knew no sin, he says, here, let me, let me give you my righteousness. And it's this great exchange. So then Jesus takes our sin on the cross, takes it to hell away from us. And we're just like, I'm righteous. I'm free. I, it was just given to me. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Hear the words, pursue Jesus so that you can be made righteous in him. Pursue righteousness and faith. And I love this slide because oftentimes when we hear the word faith, the Greek word is pistuo. Well, we oftentimes when we hear the word faith, we think to ourselves, oh, that's just believing in something. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian, right? You might have noticed if you've been around faith for a little while, we don't use the Christian word a lot. Because Christian implies, I believe in these things. Uh, I believe in the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I believe in all these things. My life just doesn't show it. My life just looks different than what I believe. And so we have separated out uh, faith, uh, belief, living it, and just this kind of mental ascent, this mental understanding is, I believe in Jesus. But this slide, this image shows this person going across a wire, um, you know, and, and they're, they're living it. See, what most people think, if we were to put that, what actually people think about faith, it's sitting on the side, just looking out over the Grand Canyon, go, ah, that's not faith. That's just appreciating God's beauty and God's wonder. Faith is stepping out on the wire, and actually crossing, doing something. That's why we use language like uh, discipleship here at Faith. Because there's that, that root word of discipline. It's what we do. Faith is a verb. 
It's what you're doing right now. I could put a chair up here right now and say, okay, who believes that this is a chair? And everybody go, yep, I believe in the, that's a chair. But I could say, who believes in this chair that it's actually going to hold you so that you can sit there and be like, well, that's a different story. Those are two different questions, right? That's this idea behind pistuo in the original Greek language. It's not just what we believe, but it's what we actually trust or what we believe in. It's this person out on the wire going, this is how I am living my life. Paul says, flee evil desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, and love. This idea, love is a verb, folks. We live in this world where people think love is a feeling. Love is an emotion. And those of you who have been married for more than 10 minutes know that love comes and goes, right? Love is an action. Love is a verb. Love is how we care for someone in spite of how we feel about them, right? love. That's what Paul, he uses the Greek word agape, and I know many of you know that word, but it's this idea of unconditional, doesn't matter how I feel, I love you. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Again, the world, this is the world's view of peace. Ah, everything out there is peaceful. It's not the biblical view of peace. The biblical view of peace is the world is a mess. But because Christ lives in me, I have peace. Two very different understandings of what peace is. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And I think we just blow right on by this last part. Along with those who are called on the Lord, I'll call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Along with those. What Paul is talking about is pursue relationships with other people. You need relationships with other people. You need relationships with other people of faith to help you, to lead you, to guide you. And oftentimes, again, in this world of COVID, I don't know where people's heads are. They're just like, I don't know if I feel like going to church today. I don't know if I feel like going to a small group. I don't know if I feel like hanging out with Christians. I mean, we go, we sing music. Some of it I like, some of it I don't like. Communion's fine. Sermons, you know, up, down, who knows. And people are just like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's optional. And what Paul says is, folks, it's not optional. You need to be with other Christians. You need to be gathered together to encourage one another. A couple years ago, uh, we had a guy in our church um, who was really, really involved, really, really active, and um, uh, he just disappeared. So I called him up, and I'm like, hey, can we get together for coffee? And he's like, sure. So we got together, and he's acting like everything's normal, and I'm just like, hey, I missed you. Where you been? You used to be really involved in the life of the church. He says, well, yeah, you know, work's busy, kids, family, commitments, sports. So I'm just tired. He's like, I, I, I don't really have any good excuse. And I'm like, you need to be in church. You need to be with people. You need to be with the body of Christ. We had a great conversation. He's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. So we're getting ready to leave. And I said, hey, you remember that show, Mutual of All Omaha's Wild Kingdom? He's like, yeah, I kind of know about that. I said, you remember the episode where there's these wildebeest 
Uh, he's like, ah, I don't know. And I said, well, let me tell you just real, real quickly. Um, every year, there's this giant migration of wildebeest across the Serengeti Plain. And what happens is about 2 million wildebeest, um, they, uh, they migrate 450 miles between Kenya and Tanzania. And then they go in these massive herds together, right? And there's all these other animals, predators, you know, kind of watching this. And, 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 what, and then they know they, they, can't, they can't mess with these wildebeest. I mean, they have horns for sure. But for the most part, they're going to kind of leave them alone because they're in the herd. They're in the pack. But on this one episode of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, maybe you've seen it on Animal Planet. There's a whole bunch of these videos out there. Just go on to YouTube. What you'll see over and over, and you've seen it before, is this one wildebeest is going to get away from the pack. It's going to get away from the herd. And the cheetahs are like, lunchtime. And pretty soon they come upon this wildebeest. It's over. It is lunchtime. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. It's, it's nature, folks. This is real. I mean, this stuff happens. Sorry to burst your bubble. Uh, this happens. Uh, cheetahs got to eat too, right? And so I shared this with this guy. He's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Didn't show up. Month later, where have you been? Missed you. Animal Planet. Mutual of Omaha. Another month goes on. He calls me. He says, I got a really bad story. I got involved in a relationship that I should not have been involved in. And there I am, sitting back at the coffee shop. I got to tell you, your confession. Um, you ever want to just say some, to someone, I told you. I, I called it. I'm a prophet. <laughs> Guys, it's so easy, right? I mean, you, you, you see, it's so easy to see in other people, right? This is what happens when we get disconnected from the body of Christ. I hear people all the time, oh, I can be a Christian outside of the church. Okay. How's that going for you, wildebeest? You're getting picked off. I think we've got a nation of people that are getting picked off by the enemy. I better move on here. I don't even know where I'm at on time. I'm probably way over. You're welcome. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Enough said, right? We all get it. Lunchtime. Next slide. Oh, get together, people. And then Paul continues. We've only gone through a couple of verses here this morning. We've hit two verses this morning. Uh, where are we at? So Paul's going to continue on with the power of words. Verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. We talked about this last week. Remember, guys? Broken base, all that good stuff. Because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servants, that's you, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, opponents must be gently instructed, not quoted all sorts of Bible verses, gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses, not to their feelings, not to their emotions, to their senses, and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his 
will. I just want to close by saying this, folks. This is how Paul, I think, kind of finishes it up here. U-turns are possible. U-turns are possible for you. U-turns are possible for everyone that, that, we, that we know. And we need to invite people gently, kindly, and invite them to repent. Repentance simply means turn around. Come to your senses. Stop walking this way. Think about it and then turn around and start behaving another way. That's literally what repentance means. It doesn't mean just, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I did, but but tomorrow I'm just going to keep living the way I want to live. It means think about it. Reorient your life. Turn around and come back to Jesus. And if you're here this morning, if you're joining online, U-turns are possible. This is a U-turn zone. This is a U-turn zone. It's never too late for any of us. And Paul tells Timothy, and I think he's telling all of us, there's good news in that. It's never too late to come back to Jesus. Welcome them back, folks. This is our job is the church to welcome them back. And so I just want to go back to where we started this morning with the acorn and the tree. Well, we started with the trees, right? I'm not even going to put the tumbleweed up there. I hope you're, you're like, yeah, I don't want to be a tumbleweed, right? And I think oftentimes when we look at the, uh, the uh, oak trees, we think to ourselves, oh, grand, majestic, wonderful, beautiful, amazing. But once upon a time, those oak trees, of course, were little acorns. Somebody, uh, those trees dropped seeds to the ground. And some of those seeds found good soil. So I gave you an all an acorn this morning, or Doug gave you an all an acorn this morning to remind you that this is our job. This is our calling as the church. It's to live our lives like the oak tree. Roots deep. Digging in God's word, in fellowship, all those things. Paul just talked about fleeing from all those things. And then dropping seeds of faith so that future generations can know Jesus. And they too can rise up and provide a beautiful canopy for this broken world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who is good and faithful. And uh, Lord, uh, you just meet us in your word. The 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, and here we are reading his mail. And yet, God, there's just so much relevance in it, so much to speak to us. These reminders, God, and frankly, much of it we already know. Nothing new that I've shared with your people this morning. They know all this. But they need to be reminded, as I need to be reminded. We need to flee the things that are destroying us. And we need to pursue, we need to run to you. And when we do, God, you do amazing things in our lives. You make us holy. And you invite us to drop and to plant seeds of faith in others around us. So that one day, when each one of us is gone from this earth, 
our legacy, your legacy, will continue on generations to come. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.